I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. There has been a lot of in the news about Boston and education over the last few weeks. The committee is still down one member because the individual who was nominated to, the, to fill former chairman Michael Lacanto's seat declined. Michael O'Neill was invited to serve another term and continues as vice chair. A new poll shows that the majority of Bostonians support an elected school committee member versus what we have now, which is an appointed committee. The Department of Elementary and Secondary Education passed new regulations increasing the expectation for synchronous teaching for remote learning. And the governor last week announced a plan to do COVID-19 pool testing for all students and staff in all public schools across the entire state at least once per week for schools that are in person. And finally, our own Mayor Marty Walsh is leaving to become the Secretary of Labor. He announced in this week's State of the City that Boston will resume in-person learning at school in March. It seems like there's quite a lot of change on the horizon for Boston. Last night was the first school committee meeting of the new year, and it marks the initial convening of committee members and the public since the members expressed their desire to move from a process-oriented committee to focus on outcomes. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. Uh, how are you? I'm well. There is a lot going on in the city and in education right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's dig right into it, Jill. Uh, last night's meeting began with a report on a plan to increase in-person learning for students, uh, a presentation of data on attendance and learning time, the creation of an exam school task force, a report from the Office of Equity, and a vote on the superintendent's goals. We saw a concerted effort in the presentations to focus on data and outcomes. The meeting began with the chair and superintendent reflecting on the turmoil at our capital and in our country and the importance of helping to support our students in these very difficult times. The superintendent also spoke about Mayor Walsh and congratulated him on his nomination. Uh, let's play a quote from the superintendent. Mayor Walsh is, you know, of course, a close colleague and friend, and I am so proud of him. I'm also incredibly grateful to him that uh, he chose me for the superintendency of this, this incredible school district um, and that he taught me uh, all the work uh, that we've uh, been able to do together here in Boston and what Boston Strong means during this pandemic. He's been so welcoming and supportive since I came to Boston and he was able to give us $100 million to support our five-year strategic plan, which um, we are often running on and just really excited about. And I'm just incredibly thankful for his leadership as we've uh, managed this pandemic alongside the Boston Health Commission and Chief Martinez. And then the superintendent spoke about next steps in working with the interim, the soon to be interim mayor, Kim Janey. And so as we transition um, or as he transitions, you know, we'll work closely as a cabinet with the new incoming mayor and just continue to get the job done for our students and families and also have a laser focus on the reopening of our schools next month and begin the planning for a strong summer program and an even stronger return this fall. This has been a challenging year, but as we look forward uh, to uh, look forward to opening our schools and to the transition 
of, of Mayor Walsh to his incredible opportunity to join uh, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris. Um, we welcome in uh, City Councilor Pre President um, Kim Janey into her new role and remain committed to uh, committed more than ever to this work ahead uh, with our five-year strategic plan. Dealing with this education crisis that was caused by this pandemic is challenging for any administration. And we're gonna be doing this um, recovery with a new mayor in a strong mayoral city. It's important to pay close attention for all of us to the reopening of schools, um, actually the reopening of in-person learning this spring and fall, and how the district addresses learning loss given the lack of student assessment data and building trust back in the city. The superintendent and her team began to address the issue of um, moving towards in-person learning and the state of remote learning. And it's important to note that the majority of our students have been learning remotely for almost one full year. Let's take a few minutes, Jill, to summarize the report from the superintendent's team. Um, it's also gonna be posted in our blog for reference. So Jill, on February 1st, more students who are noted as high in-person priority will return to school for up to four days per week of right. in-person in learning. On March 1st, students in grades K-0 to grade three, whose families have chosen hybrid learning, will return to in-person learning for two days a week. Bear with me now. On March 15th, two weeks later, students in grades four through eight who have chosen hybrid learning will return to school uh, in-person learning for two days per week. And on March 29th, students in grades nine through 12, whose families have chosen hybrid in-person learning will re re return to in-person learning for two days a week. So everyone's so Jill, back in March, right? Everyone's back to, so I, I wanna make it really clear. We, you know, students have been remote learning for about a year um, right. and we're gonna begin in March to return those families to in-person learning um, who have chosen to go back. So Jill, we're back to the hopscotch uh, plan that was presented um, back in early fall of, yeah. of this past year. Right. Um, so I, I, think, I think this, you know, this raises a lot of hope for, for people because everyone knows this pandemic has caused um, a great disconnect in, um, of our students and our teachers have been working so incredibly hard on remote learning. Um, and I think everybody is looking to get students back into school safely um, when the time is right. And it seems like the superintendent is, and her team have noted that beginning February 1st and then, and then in March, that the time is right to begin to back to in-person learning. Right. Jill, the superintendent's team moved to talk about attendance during remote learning. Um, and in an effort to again, present the data, um, the district noted that about 10% of students have an average daily attendance of less than 70%. That's 5,254 students um, are chronically absent uh, in, in our school system remotely. Um, they, they noted that 154 students have attendance of less than 25%. And the district has tracked down the majority of these, of these students with less than 25% attendance. Um, and they have yet to find 30 of those students. So they're still trying to figure out what's going on with 30 students who are absent more than 25% of the time. And Jill, of the remaining 5,100 students who have attendance between 25% and 70%, the district has yet to address their attendance, but they're going to start working on this now, one year almost into remote learning. Right. I just, you know, the other thing that kind of weighs on me there is the data that we heard at the last meeting about uh, not knowing 
the correct contact information for 50% of students. You know, I, I just wonder how hard or easy it is going to be to find the rest of this 10%. Right. And so, yes, and to address this issue of, of being chronically absent and right. not being able to attend school. Now, this weaved its way into the next uh, part of the presentation, which was about, we, there's about a thousand students who are not receiving credits for courses that they're currently enrolled in. Um, it wasn't made clear if this was tied to absenteeism or other performance issues, um, nor is it clear how many students uh, this will prevent from moving on to the next grade or graduating. Um, but it, it, you know, it should be noted that that's a large number of students who are um, not receiving credit for the courses they're currently enrolled in. Right. Jill, we, the, the district, again, you know, in, in the effort to talk about data and use, and, and use data to guide decisions, they, they provided an update on technology. So in terms of technology, we heard that 79% of students across uh, the district are using a BPS provided Chromebook device. 19% are using a personal device. Um, and it was unclear about the other 2% of what they're doing. Um, right. But that may be related to the chronically absent students as well. We're, we're not completely sure. Um, of the chronically absent students, we learned that 80% of them have a BPS device, um, but we're not really clear why that's an important metric. Um, we did learn that over 5,000 hotspots um, and 2,000 Chromecast vouchers have been distributed. Comcast. Uh, Comcast vouchers, right, distributed, sorry. And, um, and then we learned that you know, 97 to 99% of connections are, are through broadband internet, which is, which is a quite an impressive uh, number. So a large number of students are using broadband across our city. Um, we also heard that BPS is testing, uh, coronavirus testing um, staff in schools that are open for high priority students. Approximately 200 staff members are taking advantage of testing um, per week. And there's, this has been uh, done over three weeks. Um, and also the district has implemented the pilot surveillance testing program in high schools where all students and staff are being tested once a week. Um, so 800 staff tests have been performed and 40 student tests have, have happened. Um, it's, it will be interesting to see, uh, Jill, as you noted, the governor announced surveillance testing for all students and staff in public schools across the state. It'll be interesting that BPS takes advantage of the statewide effort to provide surveillance testing for staff and students. So far, uh, BPS reports that there have been 109 positive cases 15 students have been found positive and 94 staff members have been found had to have positive cases. And a new dashboard has been posted on the BPS website, which we'll link to on the number of weekly active cases. And Jill, we moved into one of the favorite topics of this podcast is Windows. Windows, we heard, Windows, Windows. We heard that BPS is still fixing Windows one year into the pandemic. Um, so 12,045 windows have been inspected, cleaned, and lubricated. 7,213 were identified in need of repair. Uh, and we have about um, 6,022 have been repaired. So we're still repairing windows, Jill, about 1,200 more windows to be repaired. So thankfully, hopefully, maybe they'll be repaired in time when students return to in-person learning. Right. The district has also delivered all 5,000 of purif air purifiers that the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has provided, and they've ordered an additional 2,500 air purifiers for non-instructional spaces. They have done air quality testing in 32 buildings that are open, uh, and they're currently working on fixing bathrooms. So six schools have, uh, for about a million dollars, have had their bathrooms renovated. 
Six more schools um, are gonna have their bathrooms renovated in the spring, and then 18 schools will get their ba bathrooms renovated this summer. Jill, I have to note here that we are, again, about a year of, of schools being remote, um, and still the district is working hard on putting the right measures into place for, to allow for safe in-person learning. Yeah. And Jill, you had mentioned the state, the new state amendment for learning time. Um, the superintendent's team noted that the majority of schools in BPS are meeting the 40 hours of synchronous instruction um, per week who are fully remote. Now, the district did note that there's about 20 schools that are below the 35 hours or below 35 hours of synchronous teaching per week. And this needs to be addressed going forward in order to meet the new state guideline of ensuring that students are receiving at least 40 hours of synchronous teaching if they're fully remote. Right. So more screen, a little more screen time with teachers until we move to March and, and some in-person learning begins. Uh, we then heard from the superintendent about her hopes and plans for the future. This is what she's envisioning. So this is an exciting day for us to be able to stabilize the district, get our schools reopened, have certainty for our parents, have our students back that want to be back again. Not everybody has to come back if they don't feel comfortable or do not want to come back. That is still an option to opt out and uh, begin our planning and turn the corner together with this new collaboration with the union, uh, with our joint task forces and get ahead of summer school planning and get ahead of our um, fall reopening planning that will be led by our academic team. Jill, this is a daunting task ahead of us. Uh, after hearing all of the data reports about trying to reopen uh, in-person learning in the next two months, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and dealt with in order to make sure to get kids back into the classroom and address the achievement gaps and learning loss. We have a number of kids not engaging in the classroom. We have about 10% of our students are chronically absent. We have numerous students receiving no credit. The major question for the superintendent is not only dealing with the present, but also getting ahead and dealing with the future and making sure that we can reopen schools uh, to in-person learning in the fall of 21 and that all students are ready for the next grade level. It'll be interesting to see how and when the superintendent and her team start planning for the 21-22 school year. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and because we haven't yet heard how assessment is going to happen so that the district truly understands um, the gaps uh, in learning um, that have just been created by students being chronically absent or by everything happening on Zoom for a year. Um, but the superintendent did say that data is replacing subjective summaries. Here's what she said about how the school district will operate uh, going forward. Well, thanks to the entire team. Uh, as you can see, Madam Chair and members um, and the listening public, we have shifted the way that we are doing our uh, updates and our, and our presentations. Uh, when we had our board retreat um, chair, we talked about 50% being focused on student outcomes and really trying to um, use data and evidence. And so I wanna commend the team for really pushing the envelope. And like uh, Mr. Harris said, building the system so that we can collect this across the district and embed practices within the district around our own accountability to evidence into student outcomes, which are driven by our strategic goals. 
So Jill, it, it is clear that, that um, there is a renewed effort in this first meeting to use data. And we'll see if that continues throughout the next, um, the meetings this year. That's good. Um, so yeah, it's good. So we, uh, we then moved on to public comment um, and we heard from uh, a little over 30 people um, and three major themes came up in public comments last night. Uh, we had students who were advocating for the student representative, Kamani James, to have a vote on the, on the committee. He is currently a non-voting member. And then we heard from parents who are worried that the new policy for exam school admission is not doing what the committee has intended for it to do. Um, and they're worried that they're being discriminated based on their zip code. And lastly, we heard from parents about reopening schools. We heard parents question if reopening was actually going to happen. So let's play a comment from a, uh, a parent who is concerned that the district may not move back to in-person learning. On Monday, I received the reopening plan. I don't love it. I don't even like it. I think the phasing in should happen sooner and, and all high in-person priority kids should be in school now. But I think we need a win. A lot have, of trust has been eroded among the parties. Words like tentative push out one to two weeks, depending on the metrics are gut-wrenching, continue to erode trust and make it impossible for families to plan. Dr. Casilius has stated that you're using a combination of metrics to reopen. And I understand the need for that flexibility, but I'm concerned about the ambiguity. I do not want lawsuits being filed to keep kids out of the classroom again. Daycares, preschools, parochial schools, boys and girls clubs doing Zoom learning and private schools have been open successfully for months, many of them five days a week. In Mayor Walsh's State of the City last night, he announced a plan to reopen schools. I can't help but wonder, is that a line from a speech or a commitment to getting our kids back in the classroom? So Jill, we moved on next to the, a vote on the superintendent's goals, which a superintendent wants to commit to, but she's worried that she will not be able to achieve her goals that she set forth um, over the next four months. So this instated a conversation between committee members, Hardin Coleman and Vice Chair Michael O'Neill. Dr. Coleman, could you just talk for a minute about the difference between kind of aspirational goals and realistic goals, um, particularly as they were tied together? You know, I know you're thinking more aspirational farther out, but you're also trying to be realistic about you know, particularly this year, and I appreciate the extra attention that you were paid to that, but could you just talk for a minute about that? Because I, I you know, I, I, this has been a conversation that's happened at the school committee many times where, um, you know, a superintendent and, and some folks are interested in aspirational goals, but then, you know, then people can get confused that they're aspirational. And so could you just talk about that balance a little bit, please? I'd actually like to change our language and talk about what are our lagging indicators and what are our leading indicators. That we have to get very clear about what we expect that we need to happen for the district. So if we wanna be a gap closing district, we have to say, what, what is that gonna look like? And some people can call that aspirational, but given our, our long standing conversation about closing achievement gaps, I think we can probably identify what that data would look like and maybe break that over four or five years and then say, here are the lagging indicators that we need to be responsible for as a district. 
Well, but lagging and leading, uh, Dr. Coleman, are, are a different matter, right? Leading is what you want to get to. Lagging is, you know, what it, what has happened. But we can set aspirational goals on what we want to see for leading and lagging, and we can set realistic goals. You know, we all are committed to eliminating the opportunity and eliminating the achievement gap, and that is clearly a aspirational goal. I don't think anyone realistically thinks that the achievement gap is going to close between now and the end of the year. But yeah, we no, would no. be very pleased if there was a two percentage or a three percentage or a four percentage. That, that's what I'm getting at about the difference between realistic versus aspirational, which you can have on both leading and lagging indicators. Great, 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 great reframe. So one of the things I think is impressive about uh, this new structure better than the ones <clears throat> that I've seen many places, including Boston over the past uh, almost decade now, is the manner in which uh, we've been encouraged to say, here's our aspirational goal, and here's what 80% of that would look like, here's a 50%, and tying the evaluation of the superintendent, and therefore us, into the percent of achievement of, what, of those aspirational goals. And we're, and we're laying that out there, we're putting it on the table right away, saying this is where we're at it, and if we don't get there, you know, um, let's say what that means. And thank you for getting that. I mean, I, I come in the in the private sector. I've been handed, uh, you know, profit goals and budget goals many times by bosses that I've worked for. And you have what is expected to get to, but then you have stretch goals that you get to. And to me, the aspirational is stretch. And so mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we have a shared understanding of you know, is this more of an aspirational goal and we are going to consider 70% of this or 60% of this or 80% of this yep. to be, yep. you know, it, it's, I think it's better that we collectively, and maybe this is a separate conversation once we're voted on these goals, but I think it's important for the superintendent's viewpoint and for the public's viewpoint to have an understanding of what we would, you know, we may want to get to a, and I'll be hypothetical here, a 20% closing of the achievement gap over five years, we are going to consider it success if there's a 5% change in year one, a 10% change by year three, that type yeah. of thing. And again, that's purely a hypothetical, but I, I want to level set expectations. Right. So people don't say you set this goal. What do you mean? You know, the superintendent achieved 70% and that's not, didn't meet the goal. So Jill, if you, if you recall, we, we um, applauded the superintendent and the committee on these measurable goals that were put forward at the last meeting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but we heard now from the superintendent that these goals are aspirational in nature because she doesn't think she actually can attain them. And um, then Mr. O'Neill and uh, Dr. Coleman had a, a, a conversation that the goals in fact are aspirational and that they're not expecting the superintendent to attain these goals. And one has to wonder what is the value of these goals if they're not um, specific, measurable and attainable? Um, they're almost invaluable at this point. And so um, it, it is really unclear to me how the committee just backed away from having measurable goals um, to basically saying these are goals that someday should be achieved, uh, but we don't expect the superintendent and her team to achieve them anytime soon. So also, Jill, we heard from uh, Chair Oliver Davila um, 
about the, a renewed focus on uh, entry into our exam schools. And if you recall, um, BPS has a one-year admissions policy for exam schools due to the pandemic, and they did not use um, the NWEA, an NWEA test um, or the usual way of, of students qualifying for exam schools this year. They're using, um, as we've discussed at length, students' grades from um, grade five and zip codes. Um, so uh, the, the uh, chair, Oliver Davila, introduced an exam school task force. And the difference between a task force and a working group is that a task force is a formal appointment of the committee and all of their meetings are subject to open meeting laws. So that means the public can join those exam school task force meetings. Um, and here's the charge that Chair Oliver Davila read to the committee, which summarizes um, what, we, what we'll expect to see the committee work on. Let's play the quote from Chair Oliver Davila. I will now read the proposed charge. Building upon the work initiated by the superintendent's exam school admission criteria working group, the Boston School Committee exam schools admissions task force shall develop a set of recommendations for the admissions policy for Boston public school exam schools. The desired outcome is to expand the applicant pool and create an admissions process that will support student enrollment at each of the exam schools such that rigor is maintained and the student body better reflects the racial, socioeconomic, and geographic diversity of all students K-12 in the city of Boston. The task force shall consider use of the new NWEA assessment and other factors and leverage learning from a full review of the implementation of the school year 21-22 admissions criteria, as well as a thorough review of practices in other districts. That is the proposed charge. So the chair noted that the um, that this is the task of uh, the task force, and this is, a, this is what they'll be working on, and that they are to report back May 26 of 2021, um, and that this would allow the committee to consider taking action on the next admission cycle for exam school access next year. It also should be noted that the members of the task force were read, and it's essentially members of the work group who, who did this work last year, along with two students, and a fifth grade parent and an independent researcher are also joining uh, the task force. So this will be certainly something that uh, many, many families are gonna be tuned into um, and something that we'll post and report on um, as soon as we get more information on the task force meeting dates. Right. So after that, we moved on to the, uh, a report from the Office of Equity. Right. So Jill, this is the annual report um, from the Office of Equity. And the Office of Equity was, was clear that they're, they're very busy. Uh, in fact, they're receiving more reports of, uh, of issues than they ever had before. And they're wondering if that may be because of the accessibility that they have and, and, and sort of people feeling like they're able to report things easier than they mm -hmm. have in the past. But the Office of Equity has responded to 650 COVID-related disability uh, questions and accommodation requests. Um, they've conducted equity analysis on school reopening in partnership with the Office of Achievement Gaps. They're supporting equity roundtables. They're hosting 
anti-racism and cultural proficiency seminars. So they're doing they're doing a, a ton of work, and and I encourage uh, folks if they want to learn more about the Office of Equity, take a look at their presentation that we have posted on our website. Yeah, they also they had a, a new video that won a couple of awards. Yeah, pretty cool. A pretty cool video. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So so Ross. You know, there are some questions that I have kind of as a layman looking at this. Um, here's what this, here's, here are the things I think about after um, participating in that school committee meeting. One, I wonder how the district will re-engage students who have left the system, uh, especially if they have not left to attend another school. I wonder, are all the schools and teachers ready for reopening in person beginning in March? I wonder how BPS and will BPS take advantage of the state's new pooled testing program for COVID-19? I hope that they do. Um, and, and you know, you just talked about the superintendent's goals and I, I really wonder how school committee is going to judge the superintendent's performance now that the committee has approved aspirational goals for the year. Good, good questions, Jill. And, and you know, certainly things to pay attention to as we move forward. Um, you know, Jill, there's, there's you know, a, a part of uh, our, of our conversations have been for, for listeners, how could they get involved and how can they um, engage uh, with BPS? And, and so we have a, a bit of a new segment here where um, we have some ideas of how people can get involved in, in BPS um, and the committee. So uh, ways to engage. Uh, number one, um, there is still an open school committee seat uh, that, that, um, of the failed search from the, from the last, uh, committee. So if you're interested in joining the, the school committee, we'll post how to apply for the school committee, uh, on this blog site. Um, also, if you have a, a child of school age who is enter, who you would like to enter into BPS, um, now is registration time and we'll post a registration link to this blog. Um, there are a number of budget hearings coming up where, people of the public, you know, the public can learn more about the budget process and what's going on overall and school by school. So we'll post those dates for budget hearings uh, on, the, on our website. Um, there's gonna be an ex exam school task force that's gonna look at um, reopening, uh, or sorry, at admissions policies for exam schools. Um, we'll post the dates um, for that, for those, for the exam school task force. And then lastly, we encourage um, the public to email the school committee members and superintendent, encouraging them to take advantage of the state surveillance testing program. Um, you know, this is a, a way to get kids back in school safely, uh, and we encourage the school system uh, to take advantage of it. So all in all, there's a number of things that we can do as the public to participate in the process of making our schools better. And all of those things that Ross just mentioned are all public, um, and you can attend them and provide comment. Um, on what you've heard. So with that, we want to thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.